Well, it's good to get back into the Word again. Keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. This is part nine in this current series. I want to talk to you about how Jesus came to be Lord of all. And if that's a shocking title to you, not talking about how Jesus came to be divine, God the Son. I mean, John chapter 1 deals with all of that, that he was always God. I don't mean that. How Jesus came to be Lord of all to the church. And I think you'll find a surprising answer to it. Our text, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Grab your Bible and let's go over this together. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. So right away, among yourselves, there's a corporate emphasis here, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, now it's talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, notice he did it himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, did it himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nine, and now the transition. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That won't be a redeeming confession for everyone, but the point is the time will come when the world whatever religion they're engaged in now, everyone will bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ, God the Son, as Lord of all. This will not be a part of any one nation or any one people group. It will be global. God is going to bring this about. This is a fascinating text. I mean, it's, it's simply too big for us, really. Some texts are too big, not, not because we can't understand them. Like, we can see what the words mean, this text is too big for us in the sense that it, it presents a truth, especially the first half of it, it presents a truth that is so contrary to all of our natural inclinations and reflex responses to life. It presents things that go against all of our fallen natural ambitions. Because of that, it's hard for these Really familiar words from Paul. It's hard for them to carry their proper uh, medicine to our souls. It's easy to read them. I did this for a long time. It's easy to read those words and only see something very wondrous in the incarnation, the humbling of Jesus. It's easy to see that without seeing what Paul means with that, therefore, in verse 9, how those truths are to be incorporated into our lives, into our patterns of thinking. That, that that is Paul's purpose, that it's practical, not merely doctrinal. It's obvious from the way he uses it to, 
to complete the directives that he initiated in verses 1 to 4. Here's what he says there. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, we talked about this last week, any participation in the Spirit, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit's working in your life? Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. These words just sound impossible to us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the kind of attention we would normally fix here on our own interests, we're supposed to attach there to the interests of others. Now, Paul knows there's nothing at which the human spirit recoils more than this idea, counting others, verse 3, counting others more significant than yourselves. I mean, Paul knows that it's one thing to do a kind act. We all do that. A kind act to someone in need. Occasionally, going the second mile. It's one thing to do that. It's, it's quite another thing to, to permanently take yourself off the throne of your life and put the interests of others where self used to be. That's a massive shift. I mean, Bible study is peanuts compared to that. Church attendance and offerings. That's a walk in the park compared to valuing and treating your worst enemy as though he or she was more worthy of compassion and attention than yourself. See, that's just a massive shift in the base of our lives. So it begs the question, if that's really what Paul's demanding, how, how, how is he going to promote this non-self-dominated lifestyle? Is, is he going to yell at these Christians? Should he plead and beg, maybe an altar call? How will Paul lead these Christians into the kind of life that is just counterintuitive, the life they fear the most, that life of self-refusal because, because we, we have the feeling that that's going to compromise justice. I won't get my rights. I'll be wronged. Who's going to even things up? Who's going to make things right? What can Paul do to prompt this deep, deep level of spiritual, God-saturated life. How is Paul going to call people to make that kind of change? That's the issue of this text. Point number one. The first thing Paul does is he turns their attention to Christ. You see it in that fifth verse. Have this mind among yourselves, so there's the command, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So notice, I want you to notice the depth of the issue. First of all, have this mind. He, he's not just talking about an isolated action, 
an isolated good deed, have this mind. He, he's pointing to some kind of deep inward awareness, a, an ongoing participation in the life of Christ. It's a, how can I say it? It's a kind of constant, willful remembering. That's what he's talking about. Something they're likely to forget at different times in different circumstances. He reminds them, he's calling them to do the, the very thing that Jesus has already done for them. There, Paul says. That's the pattern. He's calling them to exercise something they've already been recipients of in Jesus Christ. He reminds them that he's calling to do the very thing that had Jesus not done the same for them, they would still be lost in their sin. That's it. So Jesus reached them. Jesus reached them in love. Jesus reached them in condescending grace because, shockingly, two and three, Jesus considered others, them, more significant than himself. They live because, 2-4, Jesus did not look after his own interests, but also the interests of others, their interests. That's what Jesus did for them. And so Paul says, Paul, he calls this church in Philippi and this church at 1000 Gorham Street, he calls them to meditate on this because the mind we receive naturally, the orientation we naturally live by, is one that constantly preserves and protects the rights of self. And that unrenewed mind constantly pops up in Don Horbin and in all of you who are listening to my voice. Now, of course, we, we know. We've been Christians for a while. We know that this kind of self-justification we know it's a bad tendency when we are wrong in our actions and we're guilty of sin. I think we all know that we have no right to excuse ourselves when we're in the wrong. We do that sometimes, but unless our hearts are very calloused, we, we still feel that we're erring. We still feel a bit of guilt. But everything changes when we know we're right and not wrong. It's the hardest and perhaps the most spiritual of all disciplines to remove ourselves from the throne of freely choosing our own responses when we're the ones that have been wronged and we've been in the right. And that's why, you see, what Paul does is he reminds these Christians about Jesus, 2.5. He says, Jesus was all right and they were all wrong. Let's just establish that. And then he says, Jesus put their interests above his. He says, Jesus turned from all that was rightly his. He says, Jesus gave up all the security, the justice, the peace, that comes from not being the one in the wrong. And he says, Jesus came and he laid down his life for their blessing rather than his own when they were wrong 
and he was right. No wonder he says, have the mind of Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus. We're all the same, you and I. 999 times out of 1,000, when we're asked to make things right, when we are the ones who are right, we, we feel the unreasonableness and the injustice of that kind of thinking. That's why Paul paints this lovely picture of Jesus. We gather together for a church service or we're online. I think with genuine joy in our hearts, in song and in prayer and in worship, we lift up Jesus as our Lord. Lord. I mean, that's what Jesus is in terms of his relationship with us. That's the word we use more than almost any other in all of our worship songs and hymns. In fact, the, the end of our text has everyone, verse 11, lifting up Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's the title that Paul turns to for our attention. Point number two is, how, how did Jesus get to be Lord of the church? I mean, the question almost seems a bit sacrilegious when the words flow all strung together from our lips. How did Jesus get to be Lord? But that's the very issue Paul tackles in this great text. If we call Jesus our Lord, we should think of how he came to be our Lord. I mean, one could think Jesus is Lord because after all, he's God. And that's not untrue, but it's not, it's not the track Paul takes in these oft-quoted verses. How Jesus came to be Lord. Look at the words really carefully. It's in verses 6 through 11. Who, though he, this he is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not, there's the verb, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself, he did it made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is what he did. He was all in the right. We were all in the wrong, but he does the humbling. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now here's the, here's the connector. Therefore, because of all of this, here's what Jesus did denied himself, gave up his rights, humbled himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, here it is, Jesus Christ is there. That's the term. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, therefore, in verse 9, explains the why, the reason the Father exalted the Son. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So just to be clear, this is not when Jesus became divine. This is not when he became God the Son. That's not the point of Paul's discussion. But this is when, that therefore, this is when Jesus fulfilled his incarnational, 
redemptive mission to redeem and purchase his bride, the church. This is when the period of his becoming a curse for us, Paul uses those terms, this is when that came to the triumphant goal of his resurrection and ascension. So, so every knee bows and exalts Jesus as Lord because of certain things the Son willingly did. And what he did is set out in those downward steps of verses 6 through 8, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God. That's what he had. He didn't count that a thing to be grasped. Made himself nothing. That's what he did. Taking, taking on the form of a servant. That's what he did. Being found in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. Humbled himself. That's what he did. Becoming obedient to the point of death. That's what he did. Even death on a cross. Not just an ordinary death. A cursed criminal death. So there's the steps. There are the steps to Jesus' lordship. Didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Made himself nothing. Took the form of a servant. Humbled himself. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice the verbs. Jesus did these things himself. They were his choices. He didn't have to do any of them. He said very clearly that no one took his life from him. He laid it down by choice. That's what Jesus said. He thought this through. He didn't deserve any of the things people did to him. And he didn't have to take them. But he did. He chose them. And we're supposed to all stop, bow our heads, and say, why? Why did he choose this path? What could Jesus have been thinking? Well, he chose this path because he wasn't preserving his own rights. He was, to use Paul's words, not only to for looking to his own interests, but to the interests of others. He did all these things, again, because using Paul's words, he was in humility, 2-3, counting others more significant than himself. That's what Jesus was doing. And the others, by the way, for whom he did all these things, were the ones who were all in the wrong. They were his enemies. The others were those who were quite literally killing Jesus. So now, have we sorted all that out? Now we're ready to read verse 5 properly. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so if these Philippian believers claim to follow their Lord, Paul says, now you, you it, this isn't just talk. You, you think like Jesus. You walk the same path. This is what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so you can't follow Jesus just by talking about Jesus and singing songs about Jesus. You must be 
you must be in Christ Jesus, and that, that comes to the final point of this teaching, point number three. The Lordship of Jesus from the inside out. Look at 2.5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, that's us, in the church, Cedar View Community Church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Everything Paul says, it, it kind of hinges, it, it turns on the last three words in that verse, in Christ Jesus. It, it says... It says more than we sometimes think, I imagine. So he isn't just telling these people to copy Christ Jesus. It's, it's not just that Jesus is their example. A what would Jesus do bracelet? He is a great example, to be sure, but that's, that's not Paul's point here. You and I, you and I are in Christ Jesus. If you and I are in Christ Jesus, the mind that is in him is meant to be the mind that is in us. So, so the mind, this, this mind, Christ's mind, that laid down all these rights for his enemies when he was all in the right and they were all in the wrong, this, this mind is the only territory left for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the only mind offered. So, so Paul is telling these Christians and telling me that we must, all, we must all stop thinking that we have other options in setting the direction for our ambitions, our responses, our affections. This mind of Christ, the one that considers others above ourselves, uh, the one that treats enemies with greater love and care than ourselves. The one that doesn't look after its own interests, but gives all its energy to the interests of others. This mind is the only mind Christ has. So, if I am in Christ, this is the only mind that his spirit gives. There are no others. So Paul just seems to pull us away from some mystical, bleary-eyed interpretation of what it means to be in Christ. He makes it all seem so practical, dominant, and actual. You can see this in so many places where Paul talks about us being in Christ. Let me just give you one example. Colossians 3, 2 and 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you've died. So this mind here, you, you died to that. And he says the same thing. Your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, so, so any manifestation of my free will that doesn't look like this mind of Christ I must treat, with the Holy Spirit's help, the way a radiologist burns up cancer cells. For you have died. These, now, these people weren't physically dead. They could read Paul's letter. But, but Paul wants to tell them something about the way, the only way they now live. Your life is hidden with Christ 
in God, with Christ in God. Colossians 2.3. So their lives are, their lives are uh, all wrapped up inside Christ in God. So, so that means, it means the only part of their life that is manifested to others isn't themselves. It isn't their own minds. Nobody should see just them anymore. That part is hidden. That's what it means, hidden. It can't be seen. What is now visible, the visible part of their lives, the part that is now on the outside is the mind of Christ because they're hidden in him. Now, now back to Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, this is the only mind that is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. This, this is now your mind because you are in Christ. This is the only territory left for your thinking and living. There is, there is nothing else about you to be thought of as being alive anymore. You have died, Colossians 2, 3. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. One more thing as we wrap up. The final picture Paul paints of Christ is of an exalted Christ to be sure, but not a different Christ. It is the same Christ. Look at verses 9 to 11 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For years I read those words and saw really nothing more than the description of the um, trajectory of Christ's journey. First he's up, glory with the Father. Then he comes down, he humbles himself in the form of a servant. And then he's up again to a position of glory and exaltation, Lord of all. And that's true. It's all true. But it might not be everything we're supposed to see. The likeness of sinful men, verse 7. And that taking on of human form, verse 8. My thought here is that in his exaltation, Jesus doesn't leave taking on human form. To this day, Jesus is still in that condition while exalted to the right hand of the Father. Paul, he clearly says Jesus is still the man, Christ Jesus. I get that. In 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. We know who that is, but look what he says. The man. The man, Christ Jesus. He, he, still, he still holds the humanity that paid for my redemption. I hope you can see it. This is, this is still the kind of Lord we worship. The writer of Hebrews says he's still a sympathetic high priest. He feels with us. He relates to us. He's still sympathetic to sinners, repentant sinners who, 
wrong him and mar his holiness. This is still the mind of Christ in Christ. We wouldn't have a chance if our Lord still didn't have the same sympathetic, condescending mind to the likes of Don Horban. So, so if, this is, if this is Jesus Christ today, here's where I'm going with this. If this is still Jesus Christ today, if he is still condescending and sympathetic to repentant sinners, if he still has that mind of Christ, how ugly it must look for someone like me, who is a sinner just like those to whom I exercise my anger and my vengeance, how ugly my attitude must look when compared to the grace I daily receive from my still sympathetic, condescending Redeemer. How ugly that must look. And so here's Paul's point in this glorious text. If the Holy Spirit's working in my life, and if the mind of Christ is the only place I have to show that I'm a Christian, that's what that means. When people don't see this mind of Christ in me, there's simply nothing more ridiculously contradictory. But it is, it is with the Holy Spirit's help, a wonderful starting place to kneel in a humble, broken-hearted, tear-filled repentance. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's just pray. Jesus, help that, to, help that to happen more and more and more against all of our own natural instincts. May your Holy Spirit free us from our worst selves. May your Holy Spirit make us mindful of the wondrous, unbelievable condescension of Jesus when he was all right and we were all wrong and let the mind of Christ dominate all of us at Cedarview Community Church. So just in increasing measure, as we behold the glory of our Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Work that transformation by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.